0: For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. I hate I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river righteousness. Like a never-ending stream, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. So we're in our minor prophet series, going through the book of the twelve, and as we know, there are certain themes pop up of all of these, as well as the prophetic works of the Old Testament scriptures at large, the Hebrew scriptures. There's a, a strong prophetic tradition in the Hebrew scriptures, and there are certain themes and ideas that are seen in all of them. And part of why we uh, call the Book of the Twelve the Book of the Twelve, or the Minor Prophets, instead of treating them individually, is that they even more so have these overlapping themes or ideas that are very tightly connected. We talked about this two weeks ago, and whether you uh, subscribe to one academic theory or another, what we do have, nonetheless, is 12 books in a certain order that uh, sort of are edited or compiled in a certain way that you see these themes building and kind of moving with each other so Amos picks up right after Joel and there's there's these ideas that are connected and we talked about this uh, two weeks ago I said there's they were actually on a scroll so quite literally the seams of these individual prophetic works were connected to one another and the in theory or or an idea or thought or themes you also see these kind of being connected to one another one of the themes or ideas that are very very familiar that I'm going to take a moment to sort of unpack for a little bit here before we dive too deep into our passage, is two words that you see again and again, and then a third idea that kind of builds to this third idea. That is uh, righteousness, justice, and the day of the Lord. Righteousness, justice, and the day of the Lord, these three things are very, very connected to one another, and Amos specifically is going to talk a lot about the day of the Lord, and in our passage we see that. All of the prophets are going to talk a ton about righteousness and justice. Uh, th- this is the minor prophets and the major prophets. They're all going to constantly be going back to this. And it's really, uh, justice is a, not a completely unique um, Hebraic idea, a Hebrew idea that goes all the way back to the Old Testament scriptures. But it is the, the Hebrew scriptures and the Abrahamic religions that follow from it do have a sort of unique view of what they think justice should be. I'm teaching a class at Sanford and we're going through ancient Greek and we're about to get into like the uh, ancient Greek philosophers and they will talk about justice, but in a very different way than what their Hebrew and New Testament contemporaries will want to talk about justice. Their justice, there is very much a order and a class system still in it and they want justice amongst that. Hebrew scriptures are going to want to talk about justice for all. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 1, that we believe as followers of Yahweh, believers of these Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures, we confess and believe that all of humanity is made in the image of God. That there is no rank or file system that should be created where some people are created a little bit better than others. No, we say everyone is is created equally, and that they all are image bearers, that they all are souls that are connected to the divine because God has breathed life into them. This is a uniquely Christian or Jewish idea. The world's understanding that all being equal comes from this. And now, that doesn't mean that the church hasn't gotten it wrong lots of times. And what we see in our passages today and in this whole series of the Minor Prophets, what we see is God's frustration That they continually get this wrong, that they continually are supposed to be upholding all of humanity, the poor, the marginalized, the weak, the outcast, the downtrodden, those that have not, are supposed to be invited in to partake in, but yet they're oftentimes restricted from because of certain social class or ideas, cultural norms that get set into place that override The overwhelming arch of scripture, which is to see the image of God in each and every human being, regardless of what you share in common. You share that. And so there's frustration in God's voice and in the prophet's voice. Anger that they don't do this. And so let's talk about these words for a second. The biblical word for righteousness is tzedakah. You can say that if you want. you got to get a little bit in your throat more than I did. If you see it spelled out, it would confuse you. But tzedakah is the uh, Hebrew word for righteousness. And it's an ethical standard that refers to right relationship between peoples. So righteousness is this idea or this standard of a certain ethic or way of living that makes relationship between peoples Right. And I say that because we oftentimes think of righteousness as our standing with God. But in the Hebrew scriptures, our understanding of this word righteousness, what they will hold forth is that it is our righteousness is a connection and a relationship we have with God. But that ethical standard of knowing we are in right standing and right place with God and our relationship is right with him is related to our relationship and being in right standing and understanding with the peoples around us. That's what it means to be in righteousness. Mishpat is the Hebrew word for justice. Justice is the actions you do to create the standard of tzedakah. So justice is the, the things that you will be doing or partaking in. The actions, the way you live your life in order that right standing with people can take place. So these are these two words we see again and again. And this is what they're referencing in the Hebrew language. Justice and righteousness. Righteousness being the ethical standard in which we treat one another in a certain way. Justice being the actions we take to make that standard a norm. So then there are two types of justice that you can understand. There's retributive justice. That would be this. Okay, so you and I are supposed to treat one another with a certain level of uh, stand- ethical standard. I break that standard by stealing something from you. So then retributive justice would be me then making that standing right by giving you back what I stole. I would, I would uh, amend my poor actions by giving you back the thing that I would pay my consequences most of the time, when we see the word justice in the prophetic scriptures, they're going a step beyond retributive justice, and they're actually talking about restorative justice. Restorative justice is taking it to the next level and saying that it is actually going above and beyond, of not just repaying the consequences of those that may have been taken advantage of or harmed or offended but actually trying to create a right system that prevents the ability for someone to be taken advantage of. So especially in the poor, you see this a lot. Think of jumping to the New Testament, you see uh, Jesus comes to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus says that I will repay the people that I've taken the money from. So restorative justice is that, or or retributive justice is saying I will repay it. But Zacchaeus goes a step further further. And he he actually wants to then create a system in which where those people can no longer be taken advantage of. He will pay extra so that they can be made not just back to where they were supposed to be, but further beyond. There's a system in which we are supposed to advocate for and create opportunities in such that others are no longer to be able to have things taken from them, that they can't be taken advantage of. If you have... You are not just punished for what you have over and above what others have. You are punished for not creating opportunities for those people to ascend up to what you have ascended to. You are responsible for, in the Old Testament scriptures, systems and structures in which allow for people to be taken advantage of or marginalized or to be uh, withheld the same things that you have access to or the privilege to partake in? Are we paying attention to these things? These are hot-button issues and conversations that we currently find ourselves in, and this is how the Old Testament wants to define righteousness and justice. So when they level these critiques at the people of God... When they say the Lord, remember two weeks ago we talked about this as well. When you see, and we actually saw this. If you had the NIV translation before you, there's a, a two verses where Lord was actually right beside each other. One was capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and one was capital L, and then weirdly uppercase O-R-D, but smaller. What that is uh, indicating is that is the covenant Yahweh Lord. And what this is indicating is that if you intend to be in right relationship with God, the covenant maker, the one that delivers on his promises and does not abandon you, the one that loves you to no end, the one that wants to provide good things for you, if you want to be in relationship with that God, then part of your task in your life in living out the mission of God, his justice, is creating space and opportunity for those that have less than you To not just have what they need, but to actually rise up out of the poverty that they find themselves in. To create systems and structures that allow them to have the same amount as everyone else. Not that you would just give them something on the side, but to actually create an economy or a society where all can find themselves truly equal so this is what they're leveled. This is the accusation that is being leveled again and again throughout the prophetic work. That the people of Israel have not done this. And so you see this common theme pop up again. The day of the Lord. It's really big in Amos. Daniel is huge. You might be familiar with the day of the Lord in Revelation. So this idea comes all the way, though it, it is fulfilled in Revelation and you see it in other books. But it comes all the way from the very beginning of Scripture. If you go all the way back to Genesis, the reason that we as followers of Yahweh, those of us that stand in line as believers and and those that are recipients of Hebrew scripture and truth, the Old Testament, what we believe is that all were created in the image of God. Like I said, this makes this a, a different idea. Justice itself is not uniquely a Christian idea, but our understanding of justice is unique. And I think it's a real gift that we have to offer the world. And it is a shame that oftentimes the church is on the other side of this conversation. That we oftentimes are not the ones on the forefront of advocating for this. If you're confused about what I'm talking about, go read a very famous letter that is written to the white middle class pastors of Birmingham, Alabama from a jail by a man named Martin Luther King Jr. Okay? This will help you understand how the church is oftentimes on the wrong side of what it means to advocate for these systems and structures that allow all to receive the same fair and equitable treatment, okay? So this is wrong, and we think it's wrong because we believe that everyone was made in the image of God. Now, when God came in Genesis 1 and he breathed life into his creation into humanity, what was given to the task of humanity, because they are set apart and different than animals, the honey badger has no cares for others. He has no regards. Honey badger don't care. Humanity's supposed to care, Okay? Animals will abandon their young. They will eat their own. But humanity is supposed to be different because we're created in the image of God. And so then what we see is in that image of God thing, in that, we are supposed to then uphold what God deems good and evil. This is the poem in Genesis 1 and the narrative in Genesis 2 playing out, and it's full we're given this idea that we are supposed to, God has defined what is good and evil because he is God and he is the creator. And we, his creation, bearing his image and his likeness, are supposed to rule and to reign under the guide of the king. If you are on the embassy of a country, you don't make up your own rules. You do what the country that sent you has told you to do. You're, you're the outpost of that. If you're an outpost of the kingdom, you're not making up your own rules. You're supposed to do as the king has taught you to do. And you're supposed to extend that rule and that reign to where you are and where you find yourself. This was the idea that God is king and ruler over all. We, bearing his image, being those that are supposed to carry his mission forward, are supposed to live in a way where we rule and reign over society with one another, being co-heirs of that king and extending His justice and His righteousness and His mercy. And to do that, we must take what He defines as good and evil. And what we see in the very beginning pages of Scripture is that this unhuman evil comes to human creation and says, did that really have to be the way that good and evil is defined? Or would it be better that you partook of that tree And you became like God, and you had the knowledge of good and evil, and that allowed you to decide what is good and what is evil. And this has been the plight of humanity for some way, shape, or form since the very beginning of creation. That we think we are like God, and in an attempt to be like Him, we have created ourselves and in our minds our own tiny little kingdoms where we get to be our own tiny little kings and queens deciding what we think is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, instead of living under the ordered creation that God intended for us and what He declared as right or as wrong. So this problem happens. Humanity takes it upon themselves to decide what is right or wrong, eschewing what God had set in place for them so that all could live in peace and in harmony with one another. And this problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger all the way to Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel. And at this point now, not only are they trying to live as if they are God, they're actually trying to ascend up this tower to where God exists and to place themselves in the place of God, quite literally, is what they think they're doing in their Hebrew minds. Because remember, in the Hebrew mind, up there is the heavens, which is where God's reign is. Down here is human reign, and they were building this tower to storm the heavens in some sense, to to place themselves up there so that they could be God. God is grieved by this, and he says no, and he scatters them by giving them different languages, is the story we have in Genesis 11. So humanity is scattered, and now in the rest of Hebrew scriptures, this idea of Babel or Babylon is this uh, sort of theme that is used as this attempt to rule and to reign on our own. Along comes Egypt. Egypt is now the bigger and badder and more uh, destructive Babylon. And they are so destructive and so evil and so terrible that they have captured the people of God. And the people of God are then freed one day, and this is the Exodus story. And in Hebrew scripture and mind and in their narratives they referred to this moment as the day. The exodus was the day that they were freed. And in the Psalms and in their uh, their liturgies of old, they would refer to this moment of being freed from the evil and oppressiveness of Egypt, death and destruction, slavery, disorder, chaos, all of these things. It was referred to as the day. And so once you have the day, then this Israelite or Hebrew idea is that this was the moment that the Lord freed them, and this becomes kind of this big idea, and they're always referring back to it, this is Passover ideas, they celebrate the Passover to mark the day that they were freed. We're going to go real fast here to keep time. Okay, so then through a whole bunch of stuff that we're exploring in our minor prophets and other parts of uh, Old Testament story and narrative, what we know and what we see is that not only did Israel get freed, but then they become their own nation, they become good, right, and then all of a sudden they start to try to do the things that the other nations were doing, and in a terrible turn of events and in tragic comedy, Israel becomes Babylon. They're swept up, they become the very thing in which they were supposed to be going against, they are taken out of their place, they're put back into exile... And so then now, we're writing we're with Amos, we are not in exile yet, okay, but eventually they're going to get to exile, and what Amos is saying is you are going to be exiled, your nation will be taken from you, but there will be another day, and this is referencing this idea of exodus, there will be another day The day of the Lord will come again where you will be freed and all will be set right. And the Davidic reign that is supposed to be over, Judah and Israel who are separated in Amos, will be reunited and God's people will live a life of righteousness and justice as they were supposed to do. And they will live their lives according to what God defines as good and evil, not what they define as good and evil. So this is a huge problem humanity has gone off the rails and they have decided to use power of their own accord instead of the power that God had laid out for them. They decide to to define good and evil on their own terms, not what God has defined for them. And what this does is it allows humanity to begin to wield death as a weapon to destroy one another. Because if We see in the prophetic literature, if you are not living to the God of Yahweh in the way he calls, which it leads to life, you are leading a life that is to death. And so Amos is speaking into this culture, into this story, and this is what he's talking about when he's talking about righteousness, justice, and the day of the Lord. So who is Amos? Amos is this farmer from Judah, which if you remember, we've talked about this, but we'll go through it again just to keep it in our minds. The kingdom was united under David, Saul, Solomon, Solomon's son, kingdom goes into civil war, splits. Northern kingdom is Israel, southern kingdom is Judah. Judah gets Jerusalem, so they're kind of in the the Davidic line, and so it's a little bit more in the right standing. Israel's really gone off the rocker and, and you know, split from what God intended for them to be. So we're in the divided kingdom. Amos is from Judah. But he's speaking to Israel. So he was a traveling prophet, if you will. He was a farmer. He was a regular person. All we know about him is that he was a shepherd and something with uh, some tree farming. I don't know what that, some fruit maybe, uh, but that's what we got. He's an everyday kind of regular person. And he is given this word of the Lord. Now, I want to be clear about something here because I think that there's some uh, good intentions in our theology And in our ecclesiology or our orthopraxy here, where we as Christians really embrace, and we at Mosaic really embrace, what it means to be the priesthood of all believers. And we get really excited about somebody like Amos just being a regular old farmer that just trucks right up to Israel and starts speaking on behalf of the Lord. And I think there is this temptation that means that then I, or you, or whoever, can just begin to speak on behalf of the Lord at any given time or whim. And we see this have really negative consequences sometimes. Especially when it starts to get tied up into politics and culture or uh, making decisions for our life. Where we just say, well, the Lord told me this, okay? And you're like, well, I don't think the Lord would say to do that, but okay. Like, and, and it handcuffs us in some ways because we really, as Protestants, embrace this idea that the Lord would use everyday people. You don't have to be a professional. And hear me out on this. I affirm this. Kyle and I do not have some sort of special bead on being able to tell you how to live your life. And and you don't need a professional to pray for you. You can pray for one another. You can counsel one another. You don't need me. I don't stand as some special throne or seat as an intercessor for you. We have one intercessor, and that is Jesus. He stands on our behalf, and he intercesses before the Father for us. That being said, this doesn't mean that Amos was just some, like, backwoods, uneducated... Like nobody. Amos knew his scriptures well. And you see that if you read the book of Amos. It's chalked full of references to the story of salvation and to the narrative. Amos was a poet. This wasn't something he just did on a whim and like kind of went out and on his own like started proclaiming it. You can see it was thoughtful and it, it was uh, poignant. And there's imagery and there's beauty to what he's saying and what he's doing. And so, though he is a regular person, he is not just kind of doing this like, oh, well, whatever, I can say what I want because I'm a prophet and God has ordained me to do this. You see, he's steeped in and understands the narrative arc of what's happening and what God's redemptive story and purpose for his people is supposed to be, and what he proclaims And what he tells to Israel is perfectly in line with that narrative arc and tradition that he would have been coming from. So it's not him just out on his own proclaiming, well, this is what the Lord told me. We believe that the Lord speaks to this day. We believe that he spoke through his prophets and that he continues to speak. But it will be in line with what he is doing in the grand scheme of salvation history and narrative. We've talked about this before here, but I just think it's worth saying in times like these. So, Amos, farmer, goes up. Israel, at this point in time, worth saying. Background, context of Israel. This matters to what we've been talking about already this morning, okay? So, the kingdom is split, and the, they now are under the reign of Jeroboam II. Judah is under the reign of Uzziah, which you should know the name from the most one of. Probably the most famous prophet, Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died. We know that passage, especially around Christmas time. We're going to get real excited about it. Okay, so we know Uzziah is the king of Judah at the same time, Jeroboam. These are the two longest reigning kings for both kingdoms. Okay? And this is where a lot of our prophetic literature comes out of these two reigning. Because here's the interesting part. They have split. The kingdom is divided. They go through a couple of kings and then these two guys take over. Israel is wildly successful under Jeroboam II. Their boundary lines expand, which we know through reading the Old Testament and the Psalms, this should be a good thing. You expand my boundary lines, we sing in worship songs. You make my land great. They are economically successful. They are, in a military sense, successful. In fact, Jeroboam doesn't really have a lot of war And they're proud of that. We haven't even had to fight wars. We've expanded our kingdoms and and we've kept war at bay. Look at how great we are. Our economy is thriving. Our kingdom and our nation is getting richer and richer and richer. So imagine them bragging about how much their GDP has gone up and how low the unemployment rate is, how little war there has been. And they say, see, obviously this is the Lord's favor obviously we're living exactly the way God would intend us to live because His blessing is all over us. Because in ancient Near Eastern minds, if your country was successful, your God was successful. If your God was successful, your country was successful. They were interlinked. And so they, they're going around and they're talking about how great they are and their worship is vibrant, okay? You get this in Amos 5. They're going and they're having huge festivals, Their prayers are loud and they're fervent. Their sacrifices are the best of the best because they themselves are achieving the best of the best. Their wealth is accumulating and they're giving it back to God. And they're saying, here, take our very best sacrifices. They're having huge feasts. Everything seems to be great and good. This is the great golden age of Israel. And yet we have a whole litany of prophets that are going to march around Israel and declare that everything they're doing is wrong. And so I say this to say, be sympathetic to the people of Israel. When these prophets stand up and begin to declare judgment on them, they would be right to look around and to say, what judgment? What faults? What failures? Can't you see our success? Can't you see how good things are going? Can't you see how in right standing we are? Can't you see that we're doing the things that we're supposed to? Because the Lord's favor is upon us. And they have all of these prophets that are going to stand up and make this same message that are going to affirm that Jeroboam is the king that they need and the person that is going to continue to lead them into salvation. There's false prophets throughout these eras that are affirming and saying that what everyone is doing is right. And in fact, they will tell you, don't listen to those noisy prophets. They're going to tell Amos, go back to Judah, you southerner. We don't want you up here in Israel. Go away. But when Amos first gets there, he does this really interesting thing that I think is worth noting. Amos is kind of chalked up into four parts. And in this first part, what Amos does is he's a southern farmer just outside of Bethlehem, and he's going to go up to Bethel in Israel, and this is a very important city because there's a huge temple there, and there's lots of good worship on the surface of Yahweh, but what you come to find out is it's interwoven with a lot of worship of culture and other gods, and there's this syncretism that's starting to happen. So, Amos walks up, goes on this preaching tour through Israel, and he gets up there and he stands at this temple and he begins to declare that Yahweh is roaring like a lion in his judgments. And the people of Israel and all of their success and their wealth, they clap and they say, That's right, brother, you let them know. And he starts to name the nations around them. And they're affirming and they're probably yesing and amening. And they're saying, Yes, 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 Amos, keep saying it because we have won. We are in right standing. So imagine if you were to give you some cultural context of this instead of using ancient Near Eastern countries. We'll talk about it this way. We're here in Birmingham. And imagine that we are wildly successful. And our theology is good and right. Okay? Because we're in Birmingham, cultural center of Alabama, if there can be such a thing. We're good here. And this prophet shows up on the scene and he says, Florida. And we're like, yeah, they wear jorts. Get them out of here. You're right. Amen. And he says, Tennessee. And we're like, yeah, I mean, we've all seen those that orange. Like, that's not of God. That's right. Get Tennessee out of here. He goes to Mississippi. And I mean, we'll just move on. It's Mississippi. And everybody's amening and they're yesing. And this guy's from, like, somewhere down around Mobile, so we're a little suspect, but he's saying nice things, and so we like him. And then he starts to judge South Alabama, and being from Birmingham, we all collectively are like, yeah, I know, right? I mean, I don't go anywhere but to the beach to go to South Alabama. I was told when I moved here, I'm not from Alabama, so I'm treading carefully here, but I've lived here long enough that I think I'm an Alabamian. I was told when I first moved here that the only reason you go to Montgomery is to take the interstate to the beach, like, this is the idea of Birmingham's culture towards South Alabama, right? Like, unless you're going to the coast, don't, don't mess with it. So this guy's from South Alabama, and he starts critiquing his own people, and they're, we're like, yes, 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 you're right. Birmingham is so good, it's so great. Keep preaching the word of God, brother. We love this. Bring this prophet back. And then he looks, and he says, yeah, but you know who's the worst? It's just this big old circle, and right in the middle of the crosshairs, Birmingham and this is what Amos is doing to the people of Israel he's drawing this circle and right as he gets closer and closer in the middle and the crosshairs is Israel and he then proceeds for the next three chapters to give his longest critique judgment is falling to all people but judgment will fall most to Israel in Amos's critique and why because they know better And yet they stand and they think that in the midst of what they're doing, that they're in the right standing. That everything's good. That they're doing what God would do for them. Because look around at their success. And they want the judgment to fall on everyone else around them, and they never stop to consider that maybe they too are in the wrong. I think it's really easy for us to see Israel and to go, yeah, of course. But as will be a recurring theme in our series, there's a whole lot more in common with us today sitting in this room, not just the church. Let's stop deflecting by critiquing the church around us all the time. There's a whole lot more in common with us the 50 of us in this room right now with 8th century Israel than we would care to admit. Because there's this performative thing that they're doing where they're signaling that how much better they are than everyone else and they're pointing around to why that would be true. And I think so often we find ourselves doing very similar things. We find ourselves wanting to level judgment and critique on everyone else around us because that's a whole lot easier than dealing with the little Babylons that we are trying to create in our own life and in our own minds. It's easier to look at all the ways that someone else is wanting to define good and evil and to look at how obviously wrong that is. Because, hear me out, it is wrong. This is not giving everyone else a free pass. The things that we want to critique and that we want to change and that we want to see happen are good and right. But it's easier to look at all the ways that someone else mixes up good and evil than to acknowledge that we ourselves oftentimes mix up good and evil. And so we see this. And there's a lot we have in common with 8th century Israel. The overlap. Because I think it's the problem of humanity. A pastor that I'm acquaintances with, I wouldn't call him a friend, but someone that has served as a a small guide or or person of wisdom for me, recently was uh, talking in a sermon, and he said that he doesn't think that Jesus, when he's talking about removing the plank from your eye before you remove the speck, From your brother's eye. Like, he doesn't think he's saying in that moment that this person has some, like, just terrible sin that they're totally oblivious to. He thinks that the plank is the very notion that they want to judge their brother to begin with. That's the comedy and the humor of that part. They want to fix and to judge and to change the other person. And meanwhile, there is this thing, the very idea that they can stand in the place of judgment that they must dispel and get rid of before they can help those around them. The plank, the desire to be the one in the judgment seat and throne must first be removed. I think those of us in this room in 21st century Birmingham that long to see good and right come to this world, would be good to hear that for us today. That we would hear what it means that we must dispel this notion or idea that we can be the ones that like, are the sovereign declarers of what is good and what is true. And we must submit ourselves what God would have for us and His definitions of good and evil and to know that we are not always going to be right. I think it's really easy to think we have it all together. It's really easy to assume that the way I'm doing things is the right thing to do. It's really easy to assume that I have all the answers because it's easy to see all the faults and flaws around me. We are right to critique the evangelical church movement that many of us come out of, we are right to see its faults and its flaws. We are right to critique the mainline liberal Protestant movement that's been going on since the postmodernism has taken its roots. We can critique both sides, but it's first we must give up this desire to judge and to rule and to reign and submit ourselves to God. And in so doing, there is a humility and a mercy that overtakes us, that allows us then to actually get involved in the work of setting Mishpat into the world. But as long as we think that we are ruler and reigner overall, as long as we think, well, we're the ones that have found all the answers and all the solutions, and that we somehow are God's gift to humanity and culture and society, and somehow after 2,200 years of the church being the church, that we have figured out the right interpretation and the right mode and the right method. Be very, very leery of anyone that ever stands up and says that they have figured out church or worship or following Jesus. That they've got a bead on the thing. Because if Shakespeare would say we're all... Our lives are all a web of mingled yarn, good and ill together. And what we're constantly doing is submitting ourselves before the Lord and asking Him to reveal in which ways we ourselves are at fault and at error. And as we do that, we obtain the ability to live out the thing that the Lord has called us to. Jesus does say you can go to the speck of your brother and that you can remove it. That is needed and necessary. It's the kind and loving thing to do, but you do so from mercy and from grace in an attempt to enact justice so that righteousness can prevail, not out of a place of judgment because you know what is right and what is wrong, because you have parsed out what is evil and what is good. And so this is what humanity has been doing for some time. And the prophets are speaking to this and they're critiquing Israel. They will critique Judah. And then Jesus ultimately will come into a world where the people of God have been completely exiled and then they've been given back a little bit of space and they're longing for the day of the Lord to return where He will set right the imbalanced scales of good and evil. And they think that this is going to happen by Jesus coming and overthrowing Rome and Israel being restored, the military power once again. And what Jesus says is that it is not the Babylon or the Rome or the Egypt that is the problem. It is the very unhuman evil that has been at work since the beginning of time that gives human beings the desire to create their own Babylons. Jesus says that is the problem and that is what I have come to fix. And he fixes it by taking the only weapon that that unhuman evil has, which is death and judgment. And he takes death and judgment upon himself, and he willingly goes up onto a cross that we placed him on, and that the Father concedes to let him do. And he looks in that moment, and he knows that it is there in that space, in that place, that it is our evil and our judgment and our wrath in an attempt to establish our own kingdoms that nails Jesus to that cross. And what he says is that there is no level of wrath or judgment or death that you can conjure up in an attempt to create your own little societies that I cannot conquer. And he lets this evil take the only weapon it has and unleash it upon himself. And three days later, the father dubs Jesus as the righteous one. And he raises him up from the grave. And now in our lives where we stand today, what we get the opportunity to do is to live into that righteousness that Jesus has set into place. Turning over our own tiny little Babylon's that we are attempting to create. Giving up our judgment and instead embracing mercy and kindness. This is the call of the gospel. What we get the opportunity to participate and partake in. So as the band comes up, we're going to celebrate communion. And in celebrating this, what we are acknowledging that it is in Christ's death and His resurrection that we have life and the ability to live. So as they play, I invite you to come. And to take a piece of the bread and the cup and to hold on to these elements. Return back to your seats. If you need gluten-free, we have that over here on stage right, your left. Each table has COVID compliant, if that is something you're more comfortable doing. Come and receive the elements. Hold on and meditate on the idea that it is this broken body and this poured out blood that gives us the ability to stand in victory and to pursue life and life abundant that allows us in this moment to know that there is justice and mercy for the world and that we get to examine ourselves and confess before the Lord, which we will do together as a community in all of the ways that we have fallen short and ask the Lord to help us to participate in the setting right of things and to creating systems and societies that honor the Lord and His justice and His mercy. So as they play, come, receive the elements, and I'll come back up and lead us in the taking of those together as we partake in one body and one cup.